Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by Andy Brown, manager of the Aberdeen International Small Cap Fund. In this episode, Andy talks about the types of companies the fund likes to invest in and three companies they're bullish on for the long run. I really enjoyed listening to Andy and I think you will too. Before we begin, every so often we will be doing write-ups about stocks from around the world that have piqued our interest. These will mostly be companies on the small end of the market cap scale that go under the radar of most financial media. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, visit capitalemployed.substack.com and add your email to the list. That's capitalemployed.substack.com. Please enjoy my conversation with Andy. Hi Andy, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks John, really looking forward to the conversation. Can you provide a brief introduction of yourself and the Aberdeen International Small Cap Fund? Yeah, sure. Well, in terms of my background, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm Scottish and I work for a Scottish company called Aberdeen, spelled A-B-R-D-N, albeit confusingly, I'm based in Edinburgh. As a company, we're a mid-sized asset manager and I've been with the company for about 16 years. I feel hugely fortunate to have the role that I have. I think it's just one of those jobs where you genuinely learn something new every day. When I was growing up, I actually wanted to be a journalist. And actually, a lot of the skills are quite similar to investment analysis. And what I mean by that is you need to have a willingness to dig a little deeper, to piece things together, and also a fondness, I think, for narratives So I've been lucky to find a role where I can employ some of those skills and those things that I enjoy. I was also super lucky when I was growing up because my father was quite a wide reader and he was a keen investor himself. And he really encouraged me to engage with investing from a relatively young age. And that meant that when I came to making career choices later in life, I was aware that there was an industry dedicated to investment. And as a result, somewhat by osmosis, I'd already been exposed to it, even just to a very small degree. And that wasn't all that common back then, because for many people, the investment industry was, and still is, very opaque. And that's something that we all, I think, all the practitioners involved in industry need to help demystify. And one of the reasons why I think things like your podcast do such a good job of, of helping people understand the industry. So I did a degree at the University of St. Andrews. Actually, I was alongside one of your previous guests, uh, Fraser McCursey from Unicorn. And after graduating, like a lot of people, I still wasn't completely sure what I was going to do. And in fact, my first jobs out of university were about as far from investing as you can get. Um, I spent some time working in a scrapyard on the Clyde doing manual labor separating and crushing metal. And then I spent some time in Dubai working for a small business, selling things like cranes and tools and welding electrodes in uh, shipyards into the oil industry. Um, and it was, it was great, obviously, to try other things, but I found it wasn't quite what I was looking for. So I started looking for other uh, roles and had a look at the investment management industry. And I came across this company, which at the time was called Aberdeen Asset Management, which I was familiar with because they were Scottish and 
they were advertising for graduate positions on the emerging market equity team. I had interviews, obviously, and it's quite funny because one of the preferred candidates turned the role down, which meant I got hired. And again, just a massive stroke of luck for me. So I started off on the emerging market equity team in 2005, and I basically learned my craft there. I met hundreds of companies every year. I did loads of primary company research, traveled widely across all corners of emerging and frontier markets, meeting companies. And it was just a great experience. And it was made even more interesting because I was a generalist, so able to look across sectors, writing primary research, as well as the opportunity to manage various funds over the years as well. And then around 2014, I was offered a broader role within the company looking across global equities. So I moved location from London to Edinburgh, and I became involved in running the Aberdeen International Small Cap Fund. We run a portfolio of around 40 holdings currently, so it's, it's reasonably concentrated, although I would say it's not as concentrated as some of your previous guests, um, but certainly relative to peers. And a great many of our holdings are what most people would call high-quality businesses that have strong returns on capital and strong moats. But some, I would say, are also at earlier stage than that and haven't yet become very profitable businesses, though, though we think we th- that they will. Um, and I'd call those kind of holdings, they're more what I'd call future quality investments. So the fund is around $300 million in size, and it invests in smaller companies outside the US market, which have a market cap of less than $6 billion. And if you just think about that for a moment, there's about 4,500 companies in our index. Uh, so that doesn't include the companies that are outside the index as well. At a minimum, that's about 40% of the listed companies in the world. And so many of those companies are really not covered by many sell side and certainly not a lot of the buy side participants. So we're in quite a fortunate position that we do all of our own research in-house. And we have about 120 really, really experienced analysts in various places across Asia, Latin America, Europe, Japan, you name it. Uh, in many different places, all doing on-the-ground fundamental research, which means we don't rely on third parties and we take a really long-term approach to our investments. So all those people I mentioned are looking specifically for high-quality growing companies from across the market cap spectrum where we think the market is missing some aspect of the business's true value. So that scale of expertise is a great asset to us and one that we work really hard to make the most of. And to do that, we have a standardized set of topics that we dive into with every investment. And that really helps us leverage that scale and depth of research. Where are you finding value in today's market? Are there any sectors, themes or or countries that stand out? Broadly, I would say that with the recent rotation in markets, in our experience, that throws up opportunities to buy high-quality growing companies for the long term. And indeed, we are finding more new opportunities today uh, than we were, I'd say, even just six months ago. But what I would say is that we think what sector a company is classified in means less and less these days. So we're positioned quite significantly different to our benchmark in terms of both geography and sector allocation. Uh, And we actively try not to think in terms of traditional silos. 
In fact, we, we tend to think more about our holdings benefiting from secular long-term growth drivers. There's three main buckets, I would say, there. One is digitization, uh, and that covers things such as, uh, can range from things like fintech and cybersecurity to semiconductors. Uh, the second bucket, I would say, is demographics, and that ranges from quite niche healthcare, healthcare companies to companies which are oriented towards the growth of the middle class in emerging markets, or in, so retail companies, education companies too. And then within the third bucket, which is more towards um, sustainability and electrification, we, we own a number of companies which are benefiting from the push towards more sustainable business practices and the shift to electric, electric vehicles. But most importantly, and, and even better, if we can find some companies or a company that is benefiting from two or even three of these kind of meta themes, then that's kind of nirvana for us. So our largest holding, which is a company called Cornet Digital, an Israeli, an Israeli company, would be a really great example of that. It's a business which makes digital printers that are used for printing onto textiles. And I know it kind of sounds remarkably boring, but I can assure you it's not. So if you can imagine a larger version of the printer you have sitting in the corner of your office or in, 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 your, in your, your spare bedroom, depending on where you happen to be today, Cornet make much bigger industrial-sized versions of those. But they're used to print onto textiles, so things like apparel or homewares and so on. And, and relative to the traditional ways of printing onto textiles, Cornet's printers are much more customizable more flexible, and that enables the textile producers and the companies that buy Cornet's printers to respond to online demand more nimbly. And that means there's a lot less over-ordering in the system and basically less t-shirts and hats and so on that get thrown out when they're not sold. And the other, the other, the other aspect of Cornet we really like is that their inks also consume way less chemicals and water than their competitors. So there are customers who include the likes of Amazon, Alibaba, and many others want the machines because it improves their environmental footprint. So it's an enabler of the revolution towards on-demand, online fashion, whilst also reducing environmental waste. So it's a beneficiary of some of those aspects of digitization, demographics, and sustainability, which, as I said, is, is a really great situation for us. Is there two more companies that you're very bullish on for the long term? What was your thesis for investing? Well, one that I'd like to mention is actually another Israeli company. It's called Nova, and the ticker is NVMI IT. Um, so we bought this company in March 2020, which, as you can imagine, was a period where the world just seemed very alien and uncertain. And sometimes those are the best times to be brave and trust that the companies you're buying will be okay in the long run. So Nova was actually founded coming up for 30 years ago, and it's headquartered in Israel. And what they do is produce metrology tools, which are used to ensure production quality in semiconductor manufacturing. And what really initially piqued our interest in the company was, was actually our discussions and research of other semiconductor companies or companies in that value chain. And, and we felt we'd somewhat seen this before or heard some similar stories. So in our research and conversations with the likes of ASML and TSMC and VAT Group, 
global wafers and, and so on, they were consistently referring to the increasingly complex, expensive process behind producing semiconductors. To meet these needs, the industry is going to need to use more advanced materials and new design techniques to continue to push the industry forward and to meet people's compute needs going into the next 10 years. And essentially, we think companies like Nova have an increasingly important part to play in that because what Nova does is develop machines that monitor the quality of the wafers that foundries are producing. And semiconductors is a notoriously complex science. So just to keep it as simple as possible, as wafers become more complex, the price of building foundries is rising and the role of metrology is becoming increasingly important. The use of more exotic materials and new design features just means that companies like Nova and their metrology tools will be in more demand. The simple truth is that the manufacturers of semiconductors just can't afford to skimp on cost. They have to get it right, uh, particularly now because there's a worldwide shortage of semiconductors. So for Nova, the vast bulk of their revenues as a business is about 80% of it is those metrology machines and about 20% is software products which integrate with those machines to kind of improve the, the performance of the solution. Uh, and if you can imagine the semiconductor value chain over the years, it's really consolidated significantly. And so for now for Nova, there's really only a few customers, the likes of TSMC and Samsung, Intel, Micron and in, in China, the likes of SMIC. And that consolidation of the industry has not completely, but somewhat dampened the cyclicality of the industry. And, they're, and Nova themselves are managing to take wallet share with those customers because their products are addressing their metrology needs more acutely than some of the competition. They've done that by spending about 17 to 18% of sales on R&D. That used to be a lot higher. They used to spend about 27% of sales on R&D. And the upshot of that is that margins have nearly doubled between 2012 and 2020 uh, from about 13% up to about 24% now. And we think they've still got scope to improve. And that execution that the management team have delivered over the last eight years or so is something we really value. What's so cool, frankly, about Nova's position in all of this is that the overall market opportunity for metrology and for Nova is only about a billion dollars in size. And that's really quite small in terms of the overall semiconductor capex market, which is now about 100 to 110 billion per annum. So Nova's in this little niche market. It's just too small for most of the large equipment manufacturers to take that seriously, which allows Nova to grow somewhat under the radar uh, with their specific strengths in materials, metrology, and take market share. So that's a company we're really excited about. We think that their, their targets, which are to, to deliver about $500 million worth of revenue over the long term, I could see them doing that pretty quickly, most likely this year. And they're going to need to be upgraded as we go through the year and into next year. Um, it's a business which converts more than 100% of its earnings into free cash flow. And, and they have a long track record of beating expectations. And the reality is it's one of those companies where consensus just won't look much beyond a year for this company. So when you look beyond that and into the next five, 10 years, we think there's still a lot of room for growth for this kind of business. Um, and the track record of the company gives us a lot of confidence that they'll be able to deliver on that. So that's Nova. 
It's a company that's in a niche market. It looks a little bit like some of its bigger peers, but it's focused on a critical process where failure would be just highly costly for their customers. The second company I was going to mention is a company called CTS Eventum, which has the ticker EVDGY. It's a, for those in the UK, it's best, best to think of it a little bit like Ticketmaster in Europe. And so it's the largest ticketing platform in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and it's just recently entered France. It's an industry which naturally tends to have oligopolistic characteristics. And that's certainly the case in CTS Eventum. They have about 60% share in their core markets. And in normal times, the bulk, so about 70% of their profit comes from ticketing and selling tickets online. And that's about a 36% EBITDA margin, so quite profitable. And the remainder comes from owning some of the venues themselves. So they have some vertical integration there. And we bought this company again in March 2020. And as you can imagine, a business which sells tickets at the outbreak of a pandemic, I can affirm what you're all thinking, that it felt like a very uncertain time when we bought it. And that's maybe one of the things I've learned is that Sometimes decisions feel awkward and you have to hope that the pattern recognition you've seen before uh, with individual businesses and the soundness of business models will hold out over time. Uh, And we had seen these kinds of business models elsewhere prove to be very profitable, difficult to dislodge. And so here I'm thinking about online platforms like even like the likes of Rightmove, Autotrader. In Scandinavia, there's companies like Shibstead. And of course, there's companies like Live Nation in the US uh, as parallels. And so when we initially bought it in March 2020, we had quite a simplistic view, I would say, is that we thought at some point the pandemic would reside, but we just didn't know when. And of course, that was the information that no one knew. But we think we have a longer than average time horizon than most, which meant that it was more likely the pandemic would fade in our time horizon than maybe it would for others. And in fact, some some of the bigger hedge funds were publicly shorting the stock at the same time as we were buying it. But our view was, and we figured that the company had at least two years of cash on hand to see it through. And even then, it had a revolving credit facility that would give it a further buffer. So basically, we felt there was a better than average chance that it would be fine by then. But I won't pretend that there was, at that point, a, a strong view of exactly when the pandemic would would start to fade. At that time of buying, it it was as simple as if they can get back to 2019 levels of profitability, then this stock is extremely cheap. And I think that's still the case. Over time, I think our view on the company's growth opportunities actually enhanced and built from there. So they've used the pandemic to improve some of the efficiency of the backbone of their business. Uh, which should mean they're more profitable as they exit the pandemic. They've accelerated their move into generating advertising revenues on the platform, which is very high margin for them. So again, a kicker for for growth. And they also have been, done some some good things, I think, during the pandemic. They came up with a novel solution to use the platform as a booking site for vaccine slots. In the interim time, they've also done some small deals to extend their market power. And also, there continues to be quite a nice opportunity to move into into new markets. So they talk about the US being an opportunity and Asia as well. They're looking to build presence there. 
And they can do that because a number of their peers have had weaker balance sheets. Uh, and that's given them the opportunity to do accretive deals and to grow their market presence in, in those areas. So obviously, it's a, like a lot of platform businesses, it's a really cash generative business model. There's not a lot of CapEx required. So we do think like as we go through 2022 into next year and we see a recovery of dem- in demand, that should translate through to really enhanced free cash flow generation and p- a potentially even more profitable business than it was pre-pandemic. So I think relative to when we bought it, which was around 30 euros a share, it's now around 62 euros a share, which is where it was just before the pandemic. It's a much better business than it was then. And it continues to have a very healthy growth outlook. One company that we think will continue to be a pretty good investment for us. Thanks, Andy, for sharing those two companies. They both look very fascinating. I wanted to ask you, but before we close the podcast, in all your years as an investor, what is the biggest lesson that you have learned that you think has really helped you with investing? There's not a day goes by I don't learn something new in this role. Um, but so many lessons that you learn. I think um, I think the main thing I've learned to embrace is, you know, relative to a couple of those companies we talked about, some of the best investment ideas come when you and and probably everyone else also has incomplete information. And you can know as much as possible about a company, but there has to be something in there that you can't know for sure, but you think might come true or has a chance of coming true. And often that can feel quite unnerving, but it's, it's certainly a, when I feel that being optimistic and having a degree of realism uh, at the same time can really help. And I mentioned a couple of those examples earlier with Nova and CTS. The second thing I would say is, and this is probably born from really one of the common criticisms of many quality-focused investors, and, and that is a certain rigidness, you know, being a bit backward-looking rather than embracing change. And I think in the past, one of the things I've learned is that that's led to us making some classic mistakes, like not selling companies when they're really high quality, but they're overvalued, or not spotting when a quality company was actually deteriorating and becoming a less quality company. Or indeed, the other end of that, which is being unwilling or unable to see when a company was not there yet, but was becoming a very high quality business. And I've made all those mistakes before. (laughs) I think that's one of the things I love about the role is that need to have an open mind and continue to appraise your thoughts in the face of changing facts. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and the fund? The best place to go is to go to www.abrdn.com and search for International Small Cap within the search bar. Andy, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. It's been a pleasure to listen to you. Thanks very much, John. Take care.